This is Corolla Digital. Hi, folks. It's Larry. Larry Miller. That's right. And I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening. It means the world to us over here. And if you like the show, please tell a friend. That's right. Bring a friend over and it will really help us grow. And it means a lot to everyone here. So please tell a friend. And, well, that means we'll be able to say for a long time, we'll see you here. From Level 5 City in Glendale, it's This Week with Larry Miller. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who just can't get out of the hotel room. Hi, folks, and welcome back to This Week with Larry Miller. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And, you know, every week it happens this way, every week, and what a blessing that uh, that song, that theme, that band playing... That big band slash marching band, whatever they are, makes me so happy and gives me a big smile. And Colonel Jeff, too, and Dr. Chris, too. And they get better every week. I know I say that every week, but it's true. That's, of course, the Larry Tuoni Orchestra and the Joni Nord Dancers featuring boy tenor Chris Parr asking the musical question, how far away do you have to be when you're no longer close enough for jazz? How about that? How do you like them apples? When you're no longer close enough for jazz, and uh, Colonel Jeff and uh, thought that would be good for us here, and I do too, and here's why. I don't know how many of you have ever even heard the expression, close enough for jazz. I knew it since I was a kid because... In a way, it's something musicians say to each other. It could be for orchestra. It could be for anything. When you're tuning an instrument, for instance, when I was playing cello in all the places I played it, then I would say, uh, when you're tuning the cello and someone said, are you in tune? I would always say, close enough for jazz. And because I had heard that, I heard that also from my parents, close enough for jazz. So meaning at the time, I guess that expression came out of 1910, 1920, 1930, when jazz was really becoming, well, what it is, it's it's an American form in, in, in so many deep ways. And, of course, they were really pushing the bounds and experimenting with not just half steps, not just whole tones and half tones, the way they are on a piano, let's say, and uh, the way they are on any uh, Western musical instrument, but they were expressing far le- far more in saying, you know, let's let's change the tones. Let's change the, not the tuning, but let's just change the way it starts to sound. So we have, instead of two steps, a half step and a whole step, sometimes more, sometimes quarter steps, and really willing to push, well, push the edge of the envelope, as they say. And you know what? That's why people would say, uh, in anything, if you're doing an electrical job, and uh, the, you know the the wires come in and the and the light goes on. How 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 is it? Is it working? Close enough for jazz. So in other words, if you're tuning, I suppose it's not a compliment in a way, but it is to me for jazz musicians to say, "Hey, close enough," because we can deal with that. 
And if you're playing jazz, it's close enough. So that's where it comes from. I've actually used that before in life. I've used that even as an adult in the last couple of months and a year before that. I'm not looking to use it, but it seems so perfect to say, well, close enough for jazz. So that's what appealed to me when Chris Parr wanted to know, how far away do you have to be when you're no longer close enough for jazz? And I asked the colonel, do you think uh, people would get that? And uh, he and I are both so tired, he just said, yes, in fact, the choice of that is close enough for jazz. So you know what, though? It is nice to think about phrases you don't hear much anymore, to wonder where they came from. I remember reading something where they had all of the, not all, but so many of the lines that come from Shakespeare, from so many of the plays, and the poems as well. But so many in the plays, and I had never, I read about this one in that listing that uh, dressed to the nines. When you're dressed to the nines, that means you're really dressed up. And I never knew where that came from. And I can't remember the play right now, oh, but one of you could send that into our website. But uh, had one of the characters saying, dressed to, to the nines. I thought, well, number nine must have really meant something in those days in, in, in Elizabethan England. But that's not where it came from. It was, dre- it was not dressed to the nines. It was dressed to thine eins. So it was T-H-I-N-E and eins, E-Y-N-S. So dressed to thine eins, which meant dressed to your eyes. So in other words, you were so well-dressed, you were so completely dressed, that everything from your feet to your eyes was really elegantly and sophisticatedly put together. Now, above the eyes, forget it. It was just it's the top of your own head, which is, well, not appealing. But I thought, how do you like that? Okay, dressed to thine eye, which comes down through the ages as dressed to the nines. And we still use it about as much as close enough for jazz. Not, not everyone's going to use that, but that's what you get on This Week with Larry Miller. And there, By the way, if you would, please send in other phrases like that to us, and I can tell you about some of them next time, next week. But yes, please send in ideas or other lines from other writers and poets and from just the general the cultural mood and how we still use some of them today. And where they come from, like dressed to thine eye or close enough for jazz. So thanks to Larry Tuoni, Joni Nord, and Chris Pard, who was, of course, our boy tenor this week. So how far do you have to be? How far away when you're no longer close enough for jazz? You know what? On this show, on our show, on my show, I think we're always close enough for jazz. And by Amazon. That's right, Amazon, our favorite company, because you can get anything in the world at Amazon. You go to Amazon, you click on Amazon, you pick up Amazon right on your laptop on anything you have, and you go and you buy anything you can possibly think of, right? Wrong! You don't! You don't do that! How many times do I have to say Well, once a week. That's how many times I have to say it. What you do is you go to our website, which is LarryMillerPodcast.com. Or shaving a haircut, two bits. LarryMillerPodcast.com. 
You go there, and we have a banner that says Amazon. You click on our banner that says Amazon, and it, no, we, we take you to Amazon. And it's important that you know it's us. We take you right to Amazon. You go right the whole way. It's the same Amazon that you'd go to on your own. But now that you've clicked our banner on our website, LarryMillerPodcast.com, what you do is now you order anything in the world you want. You're happy. Amazon's happy. And they send us a percentage of what you've spent with them. And that makes us happy. And then we're happy. So that means everyone's happy. You're happy? Fine. They're happy? Fine. But when we're happy, that's really fine. So thanks, Amazon and LarryMillerPodcast.com. And that leads us into, actually, the joke of the week, which is the joke of the week, which is one of my favorite things to do, the joke of the week. I've loved doing this. As uh, as you know, comedy is a big part of my life as a comic and as just someone who loves to laugh like you. If someone has a good joke, you want to say, oh, why did you hold on to that so long? You should have just been telling people. And I think we're all the same. We just... Like a good joke, this one felt good to me, and it felt good to Colonel Jeff, and uh, we'll see what Dr. Chris says right now. Okay, ready? Here we go for the joke of the week. A guy is sitting at home when he hears a knock on the door. He opens the door and sees a snail on the porch looking up at him. Now, he picks up the snail and throws it as far as he can. Three years later, there's another knock at the door. He opens it, sees the same snail, and the snail says, What the hell was that all about? So his reality was different from the guy's. That's that, that's a cute joke anyway. I think that's a fun joke. Three years, and the guy spent three years just walking back to the same front door. What I love about that is twice in that joke, it says... Guy's sitting at home, and twice it says, when he hears a knock at the door. How did he knock? It's a snail. And then the second time he said, oh, there's another knock on the door. How? Did he lean the shell against it and tap? That's not a knock. That's a tap. Couldn't hear that anyway. It's a snail tap. But I think that's a cute joke. And, uh, and well, Colonel Jeff did. Dr. Chris, oh, gave the big Johnny Carson okay with with the fingers. So, you know what? That's a pretty good joke. Uh, it also gives us someone to look at, because remember, we think of with, with humor especially, you want to say, so the guy's sitting at home. Well, why wasn't he out? Okay, never mind that. He answers the door, sees a snail, and he doesn't say to himself, well, how do you like that? This is kind of amazing. There's a snail who just knocked on my door. If nothing else, I at least have to find out how he knocked do something. What does he do? He immediately just leans over, bends down, picks up the snail, which would be gross right there, by the way. I just want to let you know, if a snail ever knocks on my door, I could just say to him, listen, we don't want any. Thank you for making this great effort, but go away now. By the way, how did you knock? Okay, fine. Just wanted to know. Now go away. I don't think, it's not out of great kindness to the snail. I just don't want to pick something up that's that gross, and then heave it and toss it, which is gross, and then have to go give my hands one of those silkwood scrubs, you know, where you have you get something, you get some radiation on yourself, and you have to use hard wire brushes now to scrape it off. I would instead just say to the snail, 
You want to come in for a soda? No, you don't really. And by the way, I don't want you in here, and so just go on your way. But this guy was this guy was a little on the tough side. He was as, as mean as, well, as we say here, as mean as a snail. So in any case, that was our joke of the week, which leads us, as always, into the poetry corner. That's right, the poetry corner. The corner of poetry, of poems, which I love doing because, remember, poetry is just another great way to look at life. It's a wonderful way for really talented writers to think and live, to get them into describing moments in their lives. And this one was written by someone I've read about before and I've, whose poems I have, one I recited because I know it by heart, uh, stopping by a woods on a snowy eve, and uh, but he's just wonderful, and what a wonderful life. And I'm talking about Robert Frost, who had uh, was very, very popular, and uh, published his first poem. It said on the uh, on his biography there in eighteen eighteen eighty four, I think it was, or eighteen eighty six. Either way, that's a while ago, and uh, that was for. Uh, uh, a newspaper or a magazine in New York City called the New York Independent, I think it was, and they gave him 15 bucks for that, which is pretty good. That Let's be honest. That would be pretty good today. If you wrote a poem and sent it in, someone said, here, here's 15 bucks, you'd say, well, how do you like that? That's pretty good. And it was. But in 1884, I think it's very good. You could, you could at that time, you could take, you, you know, your girlfriend out on a date for a big dinner, and then and then your whole family out on the on a family date for a big dinner with fifteen dollars, and then you could buy a house, another house for the family with fifteen dollars. In any case, I'm very fond of Robert Frost, and this is a poem where he looks inside into a good place, and uh, it's 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 very interesting his word choice and very meaningful. It's called a line. Storm Song. That's L-I-N-E hyphen storm. A line storm song. The line storm clouds fly tattered and swift. The road is forlorn all day where a myriad snowy quartz stones lift and the hoof prints vanish away. The roadside flowers, too wet for the bee, expend their bloom in vain. Come over the hills and far with me, and be my love in the rain. The birds have less to say for themselves in the wood world's torn despair than now these numberless years. The elves, although they are no less there, all song of the woods is crushed like some wild easily shattered rose. Come, be my love in the wet woods. Come, where the boughs rain when it blows. There is the gale to urge behind and bring our singing down, and the shallow waters aflutter with wind from which to gather your gown. What matter if we go clear to the west and come not through dry shod? For wilding brooch shall wet your breasts the rain-fresh goldenrod. Oh, never this whelming east wind swells, but it seems like the seas return to the ancient lands where it left the shells before the age of the fern. 
and it seems like the time when, after doubt, our love came back amain. Oh, come forth into the storm and rout, and be my love in the rain. Isn't that nice? And once again, it's like so many things, whether it's humor or theater or storytelling or, of course, just poetry. Well, you're never going to have a look like Robert Frost just gave you. And I'm glad he did. Colonel Jeff just put something up on the screen again. Oh, he just looked this up. $15 is equal to $377 today. Oh, interesting. And you know what's cool? I never would have said more than 376. I would have said 376 maybe if you know the guy at the general store. But 377. No, that's kind of neat. That's why it's also cool knowing someone like Colonel Jeff. I wouldn't know to where to look that up. I I wouldn't know who who to look that up with. He knows where to look it up. He knows who wrote it. Now, by the way, that's you have to talk to that guy and say, "By the way, why did you write these things? Why did you get these things?" How did the snail knock at the door? So we move on now to something else that's magical, which is something I love doing, the magic movie moment. This just came to me yesterday. I came back from Vancouver yesterday, and it takes a while. Even though it's only about three hours to fly there, I'm, I have a part in a, in a movie there. It's a Hallmark movie of the week, and I think it's very good. It's called... Magical Mystery Tour, or something close to that. I just realized (laughs) that's not it. Shouldn't I know this, by the way? I'm in the thing. Shouldn't I know it? Magical Mystery Cruise. Maybe that's it. Maybe. (laughs) I was in things, by the way, the way they had the best titles in the world, and then they they changed them because someone didn't like it uh, at the executive level. It Well, you know... That, that that's the way it goes. Uh, there there was one. <laughs> there there was one. Oh golly! I thought it had the best title in the one. I can't even remember the original one now. It wound up being under undercover blues. Was the was the title that it went into the theater with? Oh, that's right. That's right. The colonel just wrote it on the screen because he and I have talked about the, this before. Apparently, the original title was. Cloak and Diaper, which I thought was a great title. I think, you know what? That's a pretty good title, Cloak and Diaper, because just from that, you know, oh, Cloak and Diaper, so they're spies, but they have a baby, so they're married spies, and uh, yeah, and then they get in trouble. with It tells you everything really about the movie, and it makes you smile. It's kind of witty. It's, oh, Cloak and Diaper, how do you like that? Oh, never ran into that before, and it was an original thing. And I still remember the day we were shooting. This was in New Orleans, and the whole movie was shot in New Orleans and all around the area there. And I remember the day when they said, oh, the executives are coming from the studio to see what we're doing. There had to be a reason. And they came there, and it turned out they came there because they weren't crazy about the title anymore, Cloak and Diaper. No, so it's still being made. You know, it's it's, it's always odd when people do that. And they changed it to... Undercover Blues. See, the family in the movie, this was uh, Dennis Quaid and Kathleen Turner, and their married name in the movie was Blue. They were the, so they're the Blue family, or the Blues. And 
the undercover, they put the word undercover in there. But it seemed to me anyway, and I just told this to the director, I said, but if people haven't seen the movie, how will they know that their name is Blue? And he, he was a great guy, and he, he just held his hands up at me and, and just said, hey, don't. You can't imagine what I've been through on this. I said, fair enough. Let's go get a free lunch. So anyway, that was that was. It. I like when things are changed. And what happened was this this magic movie moment really really made me feel good because the name of the movie is and I had never seen this. The name of the movie is Deception. It was from 1946. It's a film noir movie. And oh, what a great category! If you're not familiar with it, look into film noir. Roughly, roughly from World War II through the 50s and even into the 60s a little bit. The concept of the film noir with where characters are, even the heroic characters are flawed and they're not big heroes anymore. It's just wonderful in the way love is played and people fall out of love and he fell for her but she's not so nice. And it's great stuff. But this is called Deception starring Betty Davis Paul Reed and Claude Rains. Now, they they were all three working together. This was made in 1946. In 1942, there was a movie the three of them were in called Now Voyager, which is a terrific movie. Go see that sometimes. Pick it up somewhere or, or find it on the Internet. It's a great movie, and the three were in that. And in this one, though, this is Betty Davis, Paul Reed, and Claude Rains. You'll recognize them instantly. And Paul Reed and Cla- Paul on Reed and Claude Rains, by the way, were also in Casablanca together, and oh, it's it, they're very very good. The three of these folks are wonderful in acting. They're so good, and the reason I'm using it as a magic movie moment is that I saw this just yesterday after flying back from Vancouver, and I was a little punchy, and I got back in the house about six o'clock. And this is after getting up early, you know, like 6 in the morning. And it's no big deal. It's not like working in a salt mine. That's It's fine. But I got back about 6 p.m. and I unpacked my stuff and washed up and just got into the bed. I was pretty beat. And then I put this on about 8 o'clock and it had just started. And it what was so good about it was to see these actors throughout the whole movie working in a way you don't really see that often in them. They were working in an emotional, small, film noir way. And it was so good. And then I just read on some of the things that were on the, uh, well, the internet notice when uh, when Jeff pulled it up, that it got good reviews, and but it didn't do well as a movie. It It was the first movie, as they said in this review, it was the first movie of Betty Davis uh, that Betty Davis was starring in that didn't make a zillion dollars. So people weren't crazy about it. And I'm telling you, it's a real shame because a film noir movie from 1946 where they're wearing their hearts on their sleeves, so to speak. It's a very emotional movie. And there's a lot of mystery planning and a lot of ooh, things that make you say, boy, that guy's mean. And I'm telling you, the magic movie moment in this case is the fact that throughout this whole movie, and even at the very end, you see, we're the only ones who know what happened. The other people in the movie, the other characters in the movie, 
The audience in the movie, so to speak, doesn't know what happened. But you and I do. And you know what? When they when they go off and the movie ends, and I don't want to spoil it and tell you, tell you what happens, but it's very interesting, very intriguing, very mysterious, and really very touching in, in a common way, which is good. That it makes you think, I guess, I, I wonder what I would feel like in a situation like that. So the magic movie moment this week isn't something short and personal. It's not short and personal where the star or one of the characters looks up or thinks to himself or she walks off to the side and just says something out loud that only you and I hear. That's not the magic movie moment of this. The magic movie moment of this is, boy, the way these great actors see the characters they are and the way it was directed by a guy named Irving Tapper whom I had never heard of anyway. And uh, the way they made this thing was very interesting to me, very moving, and, well, a great way to come back from Vancouver for a couple of days. And uh, so I hope you enjoy that one. Let us know. Deception from 1946 with Betty Davis, Paul Henreid, and Claude Rains. And uh, I am back from Vancouver for a couple of days, and I came back to do two things. One, to do this show, our show, my show. And that's a very big part of my life, and I love doing it. And, well, I'm, I'm glad you folks uh, like it, too. It's very meaningful to all of us here, to the colonel, the doctor, and me. And that there was that, and then also because I'm at... Well, Ace Productions here, which is the Adam Carolla company. Adam made another movie, and I'm in it, which I just love. It's it's really nice. It's called Road Hard, and he's he got the funding from it, and he's he's going out now to get the money that it takes to really finish the thing, and we'll get it all shiny and send it out there. But it's so interesting. One of the reasons I'm here in this studio now is I liked that guy the day we met. Corolla, I mean. I just love being funny with the guy. And then we just kept working together he, they, on their, the radio show there he had. And I would go from, uh, oh, a couple of times a year on it. And then I, I got to where I, I was there a lot. And I loved being there. And I loved waking up early in the morning to go over there. And beyond the show, I love the cast. Paul Bryan was on that show, and uh, Teresa was on that show, and it was just and so many of the people as producers, uh, you know, with with Mike Lynch and and Mike August and so many of these folks who were associated with that show. And I'll tell you what, I loved doing it. And then when uh, he started this company, he started doing his podcast. Well, I love being on that too. The point is. He was nice enough to ask. He said, I'm having a press conference for the movie today. Would you come over and, and be in it? And I said, well, I'd love to. So I'll tell you what, that's enough to get me back from Vancouver. And uh, it's a trip I I know I've made an, an, enough. It's about three hours. But I'll tell you, it was it was good because I haven't been – this is one of those trips. I've mentioned this before. First of all, there is a Tim Hortons – Right down the block. It's just a few blocks down, 
and one block down the other way, a very short walk, and this has been gorgeous weather up there. And I've mentioned before on this show that I've never had Tim Horton's coffee, and it's really popular all over Canada. It's a gigantic success, and they have, well, coffee-type food there in a good way. You can get a full lunch there. You can get breakfast there. You can get anything you want there. But I've planned, and I told you I planned that this trip, meaning the last week I was there, I was finally going to get to Tim Hortons. And I'm here to tell you, drum roll please, I am here to tell you I did not do it. I could not do it. I still couldn't get out of the hotel room. I realized I had hotel rooms disease, which you may know about. There was uh, one day on the set, and it's a, I think it's going to be a terrific movie, and we're we're on the boat, There's a, and we went, went out on the boat, and I had to get up at 4.30 in the morning, and got picked up, had a shower shave, got picked up at 5.15, and was there really the whole day of work, and then you get back, and as you know, this nice young woman, Mia, who drives me back and forth from there, and as we passed the Tim Hortons, she knows I had plans to go in there. She knows the whole story with me and Tim Hortons that I just haven't gotten there. And I said, well, you know what? Now I am. I'm going to get back to the hotel room. I'm going to get in the shower, wash up the makeup, wash everything off, and I'm putting on some clean clothes. And then I am going to take a nice stroll right down to this Tim Hortons and see what it is, see what it's all about, and be able to tell my friends, everyone who listens to This this Week with Larry Miller, what Tim Hortons is, how good it is. But I got to I got hotel rooms disease because as soon as I got into the hotel room, I realized I'm pretty tired. And now it was about seven o'clock at night. I got up at four thirty in the morning. I'm, I'm, again, this is not like I've done something unbelievable. But wearing makeup all day is hard. No, I mean that. And so I just got into the hotel room and I slipped off my topsiders and washed up in. Well, in the bathroom and uh, washed everything off and and dried off. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I really feel like just laying myself down for a second in the hotel room bed. And as soon as I thought that, I realized I'm not getting to Tim Hortons today, tonight, for one of their dinners and a cup of their coffee. I'm not going to be able to do it because I have hotel rooms disease. It's a good thing to get... When you're in a hotel room that makes sense to you, that is a big part of the trip you're there for, well, it's hard to get out of it. So after I washed up, after I took my shoes off, and after I was just there in sweatpants and socks, I just laid myself down on the bed for a second. But as soon as you get down on that bed and you and your whole body, your back, shoulders, legs, and everything, your whole body says, absolutely, this was the right idea. And you really feel yourself sinking into the bed, and I thought, you know what, this is about it. I'm going to call for room service for something, and I'm going to get one of their burgers or a Reuben sandwich or something, but I don't think I'm going to get to Tim Hortons. And by the way, then I went out cold for about a 45-minute nap. It's not a nap when it's 45 minutes like that, but more than that, close to an hour, and I got up, so now it's 8.30 or so. Now I just kind of padded into the the living area, and uh, called room service and ordered that, and then thought, well, what should I do? 
you know, you're in that moment where you kind of scratch your belly and you, you with your mouth, you kind of go. And you're, you're, you're in the sleep world. And I thought, well, until that sandwich gets here, I'll be able to hear it when they knock because I'm going to go right back into that bed. And I did hear it when they knock. And you know what, folks? You realize that's a good feeling because when you're, when you have enough that you can really enjoy a moment like that, and most of us don't really get to do that, where you say, you know what, the heck with it. I don't have to leave the room now. There's no order for me to leave the room now. I don't have to go back to work in another hour. I'm here for the night, so you know what I can do? The heck with the coffee and the dinner someplace else, but I'm just going to stay here and watch... There was professional wrestling on, which I like, and I watched some of that. You can watch professional wrestling till you kind of don't like it. You can watch about 45 minutes of it, and then you say, you know what, I must be out of my mind. And then you turn it off, and there's some kind of old movie on, which is great. And then the food came. So you know what, though? Next time, folks, I'm here to do my show right now. And I'm doing Adam Carolla's press conference for for Road Hard later today. And then I'm going to go back to my house, see the family, hug everybody, pet the dog, take off my topsiders again, and get right back into bed and say, let me show you an impression of what I do in Vancouver. And just wash up. Won't have any makeup on, but wash wash all of it off. Still from Vancouver. And just get into that bed again and listen to every bone going, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. This was a good idea. So that's what you want. And I know. Well, I don't know. But I promise. Well, I don't promise. But I'm really, really going to try to get to Tim Hortons this this time on this trip. I leave tomorrow back to Vancouver. I have two more days on the on the movie, and that's a Friday and a Monday. And then I have the weekend there, which means I'm going to Tim Hortons. That's right. And the only thing to say to that is, you betcha. So I'm going to go to Tim Hortons. I don't care about the hotel room disease. I know what it is. I've had it before. I'll have it again. I don't care. And by the way, in this time in Vancouver, we went out on the boat. They have the big boat. It's about the size of one of Columbus's ships. It's a yacht that was built in 1930 for the Boeing family by the Boeings. Mr. and Mrs. Boeing wanted a yacht like this, so they had one built by hand. I don't even know what that means, but they had it built, and it's all wood. It's called the Taconite, and they went all all over the world, the country in this thing. Once you have a crew, once you have a captain who knows what he's doing, and then a first mate, I guess that's what you... I don't know anything about boats. They have two big engines in it. They have two tugboat engines in the thing. These This isn't of any real great interest to me. But I was saying to the colonel before that, you know, the more time you spend on this, they had a lot of their fancy friends on the boat. And so remember, this is 1930. And the more time I and the cast and the crew spend on that boat, and the more time I and the cast and the crew eat a meal on that boat and spend our time on that boat and spend our work days on that boat, the more we do and we'll have to inch around each other walking in the two narrow hallways, everything is too small there. 
the the state rooms, which is the official name for it, but it's not. It's just a very small bedroom. They're very small. Everything, the bathroom is very small. Everything is very small. And these were the richest people in history who had this built. And it's very small. Again, even, even Columbus's sailors would have said, this is small. We just want to let you know. And you know what, though? So once you've spent that kind of time on the boat, it's now become, I was telling the director this, it's now become impossible for me to imagine the Boeings and the Vanderbilts and everyone else they had there, just couples, well, sleeping on the boat. And that is a sleeping in quotes. I mean, going, the married couples going to their stateroom, which is the very small room, and getting into the bed together, and being in the bed together, you know, that whole thought has been really a little wild and annoying to me. I just want to say, if someone said to me right there, would you like to go out on the boat now for two weeks to sail down to Chile or up to Alaska or anywhere else, my answer would be, no, thank you. What I'm going to do is go to Tim Hortons. But really, I don't want to be on on, on the boat anymore. And it's fine. And now I've been out on the boat on this last day of shooting. And, you know, that's fine. But I can't imagine spending four, six, eight weeks out in the middle of an ocean somewhere. And there's not, remember, if it's 1930, there's nothing to do. There's no TV. There's no radio. There's nothing. There's no internet. Nothing, nothing, nothing. There are books you can read that aren't that old anymore that were written only 10 years before. Well, that's all well and good. They may be good books, but not on that trip. I don't want the books on that trip. So, you know what? The boat rooms are essentially ugly. I mean, they're they're not they're made well, but that one of the assistant directors said that in between shots of something, she said, uh, "If you want, just uh, lay yourself down on the bed for a few minutes, and I'll I'll come get you." But that whole thought, I said, "Was this bed here for the Vanderbilts or the Astors or whoever slept in it?" And she said yes, and I said, in that case, no thank you. I'm going to go back into the salon where everyone else is and just sit on a plastic chair and do an airplane sleep where you just hang your head down onto your chest and you go out that way. That's a pretty good sleep right there. But I don't want to be in the bed with the Boeings. That's that's the truth of it right there. So in any case... That boat is still owned by someone. It's still going out on the water. (coughs) Excuse me. But on this trip, I'm back for this show, for our show, for my show, and I'm back for Adam Carolla's podcast. And you know what? Or rather, press conference. And you know what, though? That's plenty for a day. I've already made breakfast for the kids before I came here. That's plenty for the day and plenty to get me back. It reminded me again of the principles that that really are the foundation of my life, and I hope in part for yours, that Homer is Homer and Pluto is a planet. And as always, folks, remember, if you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And that is still the truest thing I know in the United States or Canada. We'll see you next time here on LarryMillerPodcast.com. This has been a Larry Miller presentation.
Hey, that's me.